bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father, we, uh, we are excited for today for so many reasons. The snow, the family, the food, the festivities. And, and yes, of course, the, the remembrance that your son left his throne he had had for all eternity past and was born. And the greatest birth of them all was so quiet, except to those shepherds. And God, now, even today, it it seems like the birth of Christ is, is hushed a bit between our, our cultural's celebration of Christmas and our, our hurriedness. Lord, I pray that this morning, by Your grace, we would be able to reflect on this plan that You had to send Your Son to save the world. Lord, would you please give us ears to hear your word, minds to understand. And Lord, would you please also block out any distractions that would keep us from hearing you. Help us to focus on your word. This is our need, is to hear from you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Monday morning, I awoke early. Oh, dark 30. To come up here and play pickleball with someone who decided to sleep in that day. But I'm not bitter. <clears throat> not bitter. And uh, if, I'm, I'm guessing most of you don't know where I live. Uh, and so I live just east of the river, a little north of Euclid. And so I was driving down Euclid Monday morning, came over the river, and up the hill, I saw what must have been over 20 emergency lights. All this, the whole hill was speckled with red and blue. And I thought, what on earth is going on? Like, I, I thought maybe a criminal escaped. I didn't know what happened. Like, they, something big is happening right up here. And as I got closer, there was an unnatural color in the sky. And it's the color that's only emitted when a bowling alley is on fire. And I got at at 6 a.m. while my opponent was sleeping. I'm not bitter. Um, I was treated to the biggest fire I've ever seen. And the flames were coming up. It It was the prime of the flame. And there it was, plaza lanes fully engulfed. A business that a family had had for over 60 years was caving in on itself. And smoke was billowing up into the night sky. And and there was a moment where I was like, is it really foggy or is it just the smoke? But it was actually the fog. So this family, they got a call early Monday morning from their first employees who showed up and said, uh... I'm not going to be clocking in today 
because I can't because the building's on fire. And I thought, wow, that, this is terrible for the owners and the workers there. And, I also th- and, and that same morning, they got a lot less news over on 6th Ave. A couple businesses and a home were on fire. And two people had to get pulled out of their home at about 5 in the morning because of, of the fire. And they were displaced. And then there's the wildfires in California that are displacing many more people. And there's, there's never a good time for this tragedy to strike. But these things just seem to sting more this time of year. You had all your decorations, you had all your festivities planned, and all that's ruined. And just like the, the owners of Plaza Lanes that got that call at 6.30, 7 in the morning, there's not a person in this room who is immune to getting one phone call that could change your life. Not a single one of us. And... Uh, When things go horribly wrong, where do we turn? Who is your first call when the world falls out from under you? Where is your comfort, your peace, and your hope? While preaching out of the Psalms, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who Dave referenced last week, the doctor said, that true Christians are always driven by adversity to God. I'll repeat that. True Christians are always driven by adversity to God. Everyone in life, we will always face adversity. I heard someone once say that we are, all, that we are either in adversity, just gotten out of adversity, or about to enter adversity. For believers, adversity drives us to prayer. It, it drives us to study scripture. It drives us to the body of Christ. Lloyd-Jones, in that same sermon, he also said that Christians not only instinctively turn to God in this way at such a time, but they feel they have the right to do so. Keller takes, the, uh, takes a very similar Vain, and he says this, Tim Keller, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. The only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. is a child for a glass of water. And we have that kind of access to God our Father. We don't know this This morning we're in Psalm 40. And we don't know the specific circumstances that led to the penning of Psalm 40. But we know that David faced a lot of adversity in his life. Whether it was as a shepherd out alone at night fighting off wild animals. Whether it was in battle. Whether it was hiding from Saul. Whether it was hiding from his sons. He had no shortage of adversity. But this adversity taught him the faithful presence of God. And uh, since I'm an absent-minded pastor who completely forgot to have the reader read before I preach, I'm going to ask Tanya if you would come up and read Psalm 40 for us. Psalm 40. I 
waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who, do not, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written, in, is written within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So here's David. He's, he seems to be on the other side of adversity. And he's praising God for how God was there as adversity drove him there. And Psalm 40, as we'll, we'll see very much, is not just about David and his deliverance. It's also about our deliverance. And it has a lot to do with the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah who is present with us. The coming Messiah who is our present King. Our Messiah, who is the present King, shows His presence to us by actively listening. As we look at the psalm, particularly these first three verses, I want us to observe not only the powerful imagery, but to look closely at the posture of David and of God. And what are each of them doing? Well, David has a pretty small role. If this were a play, David's part would be pretty boring. David waits patiently. He prays. I I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. So David has prayed, he has cried out, and he waits for God. One of the more difficult parts of being a Christian is waiting for God and his timing. How how, How often do we in our own lives say, well, if God would just do things on my schedule... This would be a lot more convenient, and this would just go a lot better. I've heard it said, and I agree, that if we knew everything God does, we would do things the exact same way. David prays. And he doesn't just pray, but David prays with the patient confidence of a man who knows the Lord. He did cry out, and it's appropriate to do so. Crying out is okay, it's normal. The question is, who do you cry out to? And what is your heart when you're crying out? For David, it was patient. 
Because he knew the Lord. He knew how the Lord would, would respond. He knew that eventually God would respond. There's um, orphanages where they have nurseries. And you go and you think all the babies are, are asleep because it's completely silent. But because there are so many babies and there are so few workers, the babies have learned that nobody's going to come to them when they cry. So they just cry quietly. We don't need to cry quietly. We can cry out knowing that God will hear us. And so David cries out, but he does so with patience. So what do we observe about God? He heard my cry. He listens to us. In verse 2 and 3, He drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth of praise to God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. God worked, and God worked in a way that, that changed David in two ways. First, it changed his position. David describes himself as being in a pit of destruction, so he's in a place that he cannot escape. I can't climb out of this. And not only can he not escape, but the ground underneath him is unsecure. It is a miry bog. I don't know if you've ever had the unique, uh, we'll call it pleasure, of being in a bog. It's terrible. The, The ground underneath you, it's like walking on a nasty waterbed. Like it's just moving the whole time. Our, our first Boundary Waters trip as a church, we tried to shortcut a portage uh, through a bog. It didn't go well. Uh, and, and, and one, Mike Chiston had to get out and walk on the bog and pull the canoes of all us lazy fat guys sitting there doing nothing. Um, it, was, it was really amazing. Uh, it, it earned him first in line for the shower, I think, that day. Um, it is insecure, it is wet, it is damp. It, it almost has a quicksand-like effect where the more you struggle, the more you go down, there seems to be no way out of it. So here David is, he's in a pit he can't get out of and he has no sure ground to stand on. And it doesn't say that God made all my problems go away. It was so fantastic. No, it says he put my feet on a rock. He made my way secure. David very, may very well have still been facing all the problems he was before, but instead of facing them where he had no foothold and no way out, he was now facing them on solid ground. And this, this rock, all through the Psalms, the rock is this, is this image of, of the security that we get from God, the protection we get from God. Hide me in the rock. Lead me to the rock. And so he's saying, he took me, God took me from this this thing I couldn't get out of on my own, and the more I struggled, the worse it got. Have you ever felt that way in your problems? The more you struggle, the worse it gets. God God took me out of that position where my effort was doing nothing, and he, he brought me to himself. See, a lot of times in our adversity, our, our need isn't for that adversity to necessarily go away. Well, that would sure feel better. Our our greatest need in the adversity, just as in any other moment of life, is to be brought near to God. 
And David said, he changed my position from, from struggling on my own in such a hopeless setting to being brought near to himself so I could stand secure. Making my steps secure. And then the other thing God changed is God changed David's voice. In verse 1, God heard his cry. In verse 3, God and the whole host of the nation hears David's praise. He's not crying anymore. God has put a new song in his mouth, not as a ventriloquist. Instead, God has worked in such a way that David can't help but sing a song describing God's deliverance and God's work in a unique and fresh way. And so many times we grow stale in our praise of God because we're trying to apply words of praise that were great for this situation over here But then, as we go through life, we need to praise God for this. And those words don't fit this. So we need new words to praise God with. We need new songs. We need new words so we can keep praising God. And we don't forget the words that we've praised God with before. But we just keep adding to it. We're never going to run out of words to praise God with. That point will never come. And what's remarkable here is not just that David is praising God, that he's gone from crying to praising. That's a big deal in and of itself. But the effect that his praising has, look at the end of verse 3. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I want you to think for a moment of your personal evangelism. If you're a believer, we are tasked, all of us, with making disciples We ought to be extending the love of God, telling people about Jesus. And what does your personal evangelism look like? There are a lot of ways to do it. And I'm not here to knock any of them. But what I am here to say is that our evangelism ought to include the benefit of walking with God. If all our evangelism is, well, you're going to go to hell, it's probably not going to work. If all of our evangelism is, Well, based on the uh, degradation of the molecular ions, the earth can only be such and such years old. So therefore, you know, that has a place. But one of the most powerful apologetics we will come to is to say, God delivered me. Let me tell you of the love of God and how I was facing this and able to have hope because of God and his presence. Can we tell people the benefit of walking with God? Of the joy he brings us, even in the midst of suffering. Remember, a couple years ago during the Summer Olympics, there were the, the tandem diving team, which is a sport we don't get to see enough of during the Olympics. And the U.S. guys, they, they asked him, they said, how much pressure is on you as you approach the board? He goes, you know, if my identity was based on diving, it would be a lot of pressure probably wouldn't be able to do it, but my identity is based on Christ, and that frees me to have fun doing this and put my best ability into it, because this isn't my identity. My identity is that Jesus died for me. And the reporter was just like, oh, that's, that's not what I expected to hear. Uh, back to you, you know, they transition. How could we tell people the benefit? It would be so sad if our only praise to God happened in this room. 
if it wasn't happening in our home, if it wasn't happening in our workplace, if it wasn't happening in our neighborhoods? Can we continually praise God and see what He does with that? The coming Messiah, who is our present King, He not only actively listens, but He also abundantly blesses. David is still giving credit to God here in verses 4 and 5 for what's described in 1 through 3, but in a way that tells the listener that they would benefit from having their adversity drive them to God as well. David gives no self-credit here. I have a friend who, who played offensive line for a pretty good high school football team. The first game of their season... They won by a lot, and the newspaper interviewed the quarterback. The quarterback did not mention the offensive line in, in why he had success. In the next game, the offensive line threw what's called lookout blocks. Look out! <laughs> Just let them go through. And uh, the quarterback started thanking them after that. We need to look and be well acquainted at what God does for us. Did God only send His Son to die on the cross for you? Well, He did that. But He did more than that. How has God blessed you? How has God carried you? How has God sustained you through the various trials that you've come across? How has God sustained you as a parent? How has God sustained you as a sibling? How has God sustained you as an employee or a student or a spouse? God has done so much. And we would do well to praise Him for that. He writes to tell people to trust God. David isn't saying, be like me. He's saying, look to the Lord. This is not a self-help song. This is a God-dependent deliverance and blessing song. And he gives a warning Look at verse 4. He says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. I'm going to put all my eggs in the basket of God. And then look at this. There's a subtle warning in here. Who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. He's saying, trust God. Don't believe in pride. And pride is going to deceive you in two ways. It's going to tell you that you can do it yourself. You can do anything you accomplish. You're, you're a diamond in the rough. You're really special. No, you're a sinner in need of grace. You can't do this. God does it for you. So don't go on thinking you can do what only God can. You, you, you're a remarkable group of people. You can do a lot of things. You can't save yourself. And the other thing is don't believe those who say you don't need God, you just need them. Sometimes I feel like our culture is one spiritual infomercial after another. And people are running around looking for the next existential sham wow to soak up all their problems and wipe it away clean. It will fail you every time. Don't trust others to do what only God can. And in verse 5, David goes on. And he says, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. 
The grace of God seen in all his people, not just the king. He's saying, look, look, everyone, this isn't just for me. God's grace is benefiting all of us. And it just never stops. Let's grow in our understanding of our salvation. Let's grow in our understanding of what it means that, that when we become saved, our identity is changed that our status changes, that we have daily help that only God can provide. Let us know these wondrous deeds. And may these wondrous deeds inspire more new songs among us as God's people. So that believers and unbelievers alike can hear how great our God is. And then he says, none Verse 5, towards the end, none can, can compare with you. God, you are holy. You are unique. There's no one else that can do this for me. None of these other supposed deities. My job can't do this for me. My kids can't do this for me. My spouse can't do this for me. No amount of money can do this for me. God, you alone are worthy. And look what he does. He says, I will proclaim and tell them. Yet there are more than can be told. God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and tell people everything you've done for me, but I'm not going to have enough time. This is similar to how the Gospel of John ends, where John goes, look guys, I tried to write everything down, but if I did, I'd run out of paper." If I wrote down everything Jesus did, there's not enough books. I, I just, this is my shot. I couldn't fit it all. There's too much. God has done so much. Jesus is so great. And the coming Messiah, who is our present king, he not only actively listens, he not only abundantly blesses, but this is wild, he graciously involves us. Now, Peter in his apostle, he's, in his epistle, he said that the prophets knew they were prophesying about Christ. And they searched and inquired, is the Spirit of Christ among us now? No, he's not. I'm serving someone else as I write this down. That the prophets understood that a little bit. And David was not only a king, he was also a prophet. There's a lot of prophetic literature throughout the Psalms. Psalm 40 is one of those. And these next few verses, it's good for us to look at it through two lenses. There's a Davidic lens and there's a Messianic lens. And think of it like glasses. For those of you who have glasses, I don't. God has blessed me with 20-20 vision. I, I, I waste optometrists' time. I go in there, they spend time with me, I don't buy anything. But if you had glasses and you just decided, I'm just going to poke out one of these lenses... I'm only going to go with the one lens. Not only would you look ridiculous, but it wouldn't work. We need both lenses to see clearly. And so here we need both lenses. We need the Davidic and the Messianic. So let's look at the Davidic lens first. Let me read verses 6 to 10. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O oh Lord. 
I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As we look at the Davidic lens, we see that, that David had an understanding of God's heart. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. David's used that line before. You recognize that line? He must have like a Rolodex of of lyrics. He's like, ah, I'm going to throw this one in there. This is a good one. This is from Psalm 51. When he's repenting of his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. He said, God, you don't delight in the sacrifices of bulls. What you delight in is a broken heart that comes before you in need. And he says here, he, he's talking about God's blessings and he, and he starts right away by going into his salvation. God, you haven't delighted in that. And he says, but an open ear you have given me. This is a weird phrase. Because we think, oh, he's letting God, he's making it so David can listen to God. No, no this is... Um, it used to be the sign of a slave was you would dig out, a, dig out a hole. You would pierce their ear. If your ear was pierced, it meant you belonged to someone. And, uh, and there, was, there were customs that, that people could pierce their own ear so they wouldn't be freed. If they really liked the master, they could pierce their own ear and say, I'm with you forever. And David's saying, God, you, you dug out a hole in my ear. I belong to you. My life is for you. I exist for your glory, O oh God. I exist for your purposes. We are saved by grace, but our obedience matters. And so David goes on to his obedience. Burnt offerings and sin offering you have not required, but my obedience, my showing that I belong to you with my life. If all we came, if the only thing we ever did that was Christian was give money, God wouldn't care. He'd say, you're missing it. I want the broken heart. I want the obedience. I want want you. The offerings aren't the point. You're the point. God came for you. God loves you. He has enough money. He loves you. David goes on, he says, I delight to do your will, oh my God, the law that is in my heart. God, I have internalized your word. I'm going to live this out. In David's life, obedience was a big deal. He, did, he made the blueprints for the temple. He set and firmed up the boundaries of Israel. He wrote all of these songs. He led the nation in the worship of God. He united the nation under God. And then David has a personal response to the good news about God in, in, in 9 and 10. And this is, I'm not going to restrain. Look, listen, he goes, I haven't restrained my lips. I haven't hidden your deliverance. I haven't concealed your steadfast love. What I have done is I've spoken of your faithfulness. David was set to let the whole nation know of who God is and what he does. That he delivers us.
as we read the Old Testament, one thing I, I just want you to know as a reader, the whole Old Testament is filled with these Jesus hints all the way through, just hints of Jesus all the way through the Old Testament. You could preach the whole gospel from the Old Testament. It's all there. Paul and Peter preached the whole gospel from the Old Testament. And there's these hints of Jesus just stacked through it. And the New Testament helps us see that. One of those major Jesus hints comes here in Psalm 40. And it's quoted in Hebrews 10. If you, if you want to, turn with me to Hebrews 10 real quick. Uh, if you don't want to, I won't make you. I'm not going to come and check your pages. That'd be creepy. So in Hebrews 10, in verse 5, consequently, it's just said that the blood of bulls, Hebrews has just said the blood of bulls and goats, they can't take away sins. They put a hold on sins, they can't take it away. Consequently, verse 5 of Hebrews 10, when Christ came into the world, you could put, as Jesus was incarnated in flesh, as he left heaven to come down as Christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sins and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure then I said behold I have come to do your will O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book well this sounds a lot like Psalm 40 doesn't it and I I don't know if this is how it happened, but I imagine Jesus, as he's, as he's stepping off the throne, getting ready to go to Bethlehem, he says to God, and he just quotes at God, Psalm 40. Father, sacrifices and offerings, this old covenant, this isn't your true desire, but a body you prepared for me, and it's, it's, it's about to appear in Bethlehem, this body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure because they don't get the whole job done. Then I said, behold, Father, I have come to do your will, O God, this will of redemption as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, as Isaiah wrote it, as Moses wrote it, as Jeremiah wrote it, as David wrote it, as all these writings of me in the scroll of your book. I'm going to go do that, Father. And then Jesus was born. In our adult Bible fellowship, we just uh, finished the Passover section of Exodus last week. And all these families in Egypt, they had to go find a one-year-old male lamb without blemish. And take this lamb in its prime and slaughter it. For all intensive purposes, each of those lambs only existed so they could die to deliver God's people. This lamb was born to be sacrificed for sin. Jesus said, Father, you've prepared a body for me. It's about to be placed in a manger in swaddling clothes. I have come to do your will. Behold, it is written of me in your book. It is written of me how I will live. It is written of me what I will do. It is written of me how I will die. 
That body that's placed in the manger was made to be hung on a cross. It was no surprise. Jesus didn't get to like 15 years old. One day he's reading, he's like, oh shoot, that's going to hurt. I mean, he might have. We know in Gethsemane he had a lot of agony. But he wasn't surprised by it. Because before he even came down, he quoted this verse. And he quoted 6 to 8. But it wouldn't surprise me if he also quoted 9 to 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance. In the great congregation, behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Think of Jesus on the hill teaching and thinking, oh man, we've got to feed these 5,000 people something. Can't just have them come out and listen to me all day and go hungry. And so Jesus models this lack of restraint with the deliverance of God. And he models it. He, he tells people, this is what the law says. And then at the end of his ministry on earth, he, he does something very strange. He invites us, and not only invites us, but he tells us to go do what he's been doing. Go make disciples. It is a great act of mercy that God would involve us in His work. So how are you going to respond to what God has done and made available? Every Christmas in the U.S., we the church are at risk of making the incarnation of Christ more and more secondary. Schedules get busier. Messages get muffled. I was watching the news this week and they had somebody at the, the supposed birthplace of Christ in Bethlehem that's been turned into a church. And there's these old wooden beams. It looks like it, it could have been a barn that a church was built around. And this guy, he goes, oh, we are, we are at risk of losing the message of Jesus, of, 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 of hope and peace. Like we're at risk of losing that hope because, and, and peace because you're not telling the gospel. You're making the life of Jesus out to be something it wasn't. Jesus didn't come to tell us to get along. He came to deliver us from our sins and invite us into the work of telling others that their sins can be forgiven as well and that they can be delivered. Let's make Christ central. Let's make His wondrous deeds the centerpiece of our Christmas. Let's put new and fresh words to worshiping Him. No matter who we're around, let's proclaim the wondrous deeds of Jesus. That He went from heaven to earth saying, there's my body. God, you've prepared that for me. I've come to do your will. We serve a great Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this, this time that we can have You at the centerpiece of what we're doing. 
We pray that you would glorify yourself in our celebration of your birth. We pray, God, that you would help us to see with greater clarity the things you have done for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.